A fiction writer and a historian walk into a bar and order a tall glass of racism. They then sit for days to simplify the contents of their drink, removing all the fluff, leaving only the truth. They then serve their order in the form of a book to kids across the world. You and we are drinking that glass today. And by doing so, we'll find easily digestible the facts about the origins of racism and the meaning its history holds for us today. The book Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism and You by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! This is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, my dear friend of a million years, please Mm -hmm. tell me how you are doing. (sighs) You know what? I'm cramping today. Did you want to know that? Fun not. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you can tell me. I know what that's like. <laughs> but that's, that's why you're all about your comfort today. Before we started recording, she kept going, But am I comfortable? What do I need? And I thought, Well, good grief. Yeah, but I get I need it now. To be comfortable. Yeah, I need to be comfortable. And you know what I did? I haven't done it in a long time. I got my, um, I put some press on nails on. Hey, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And it makes it makes me feel especially um feminine and um, I love it. I, I just love that. Nail polish does that too. So now I have to work with the damage that this these glue-ons are gonna do because they're not really press-ons or glue-ons. Uh, and um but nonetheless I'm gonna feel special while I have them on. So I yeah. think as you gradually start leaving the house you'll find that nail polish lipstick (laughs) mascara (laughs) combs these are things that make girls feel special sometimes (laughs) embrace those things girl (laughs) i I think i'm gonna have to i was like reintroduce yourself to them I tell you, I'm I talking don't to do me that. too. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a big deal. I mm-hmm. mean, like, I literally been in like pajamas and um, loungewear and exercise clothes every yep, day. Yeah, time so. to wake up. <sighs> the world is opening up slowly I'm not but looking surely. Forward to it. I'm not looking forward to it. But <laughs> how about you, my friend? How are you? How's your week? Well, for fun, remember I told you before that when I hit certain financial goals, I like buy a big thing. Uh-huh. Well, I hit a really big goal, so I bought a Vitamix. Oh. <laughs> this is exciting for me. That is exciting. <laughs> oh my God, that's like the I was I did some research over the um uh winter, yeah, and like the Christmas holiday, looking for the Vitamix, and uh, you know it just didn't work out for me. So yeah, tell me all about it. Yeah, so it's also like a little self care too. So um, I'm trying to do this 10 day uh, green smoothie cleanse by JJ Smith, and if you guys yeah. don't know, JJ Smith is a, a certified nutritionist and New York Times best uh, selling author. She's also a black woman and she has this very famous uh, green smoothie cleanse. I'm Mm -hmm. not doing it her way because I'm eating chicken. (laughs) But (laughs) uh, morning and afternoon, I'm doing the smoothies and that's supposed to help with what you're going through, the um, cramping. Because I get them really bad too. And no coffee. I'm not doing coffee this month, which is fine. I'm more awake not drinking coffee, as y'all can probably tell. I'm so (laughs) hype. But I just like the, I don't know, the... um, routine of drinking coffee i like the smell of it oh, i like that holding it, it. Okay. yeah i like the I way it tastes that. so yeah. yeah but i'm still drinking wine okay let's <laughs> move on to society says <laughs> now it's time readers for us to share your comments with the rest of our lit society it's a little section of the show we dedicated to y'all alexis do you have any comments you like to share that were lit Okay, yeah, I do have a comment that well, I thought was good. lit. Okay, mm-hmm. this one is from Apple Podcast, and it says, "Oh wait, it's from Laurel sixty nine, 
And it says, last year was extremely difficult for all of us. Mm -hmm. But one bright spot was listening to this podcast. Really enjoyed it. Made me smile every time. Laughter always. Why, thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you gave us something to do. While we were stuck in the house, listening to Mm -hmm. this show made us have to produce this show. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So thank you. We really appreciate positive feedback. Yeah. We appreciate it. How about you, Kari? Was there any... comments that you wanted to share with us this week? Yeah, this is um, this is a really long username, but it's uh, from Instagram and the username is T-H-E-S-C-O-U-S-E-S-T-I-T-S-R-C-H-E. Listen, I, I think it. it's called like the school stitcher. But um, I asked her two questions. First of all, how did she hear about our show? And second of all, you know, what would she change if she changed everything? And this anything or um, this was her response. Hi, Kari. I'm not sure how I first heard about your fab podcast, possibly browsing on Spotify a while ago. I found your Wuthering Heights episode. And when I tell you I was laughing my butt off in the car driving to work. So a huge thank you to you both. I've recommended you to many of my friends. I wouldn't change a thing about the podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. And her name is Deborah. Thank you, Deborah from Liverpool, UK. We We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Much remember, listeners, if you like for um, us to know what you feel about our show, please leave us a message on social media, send us an email, or we especially love when you leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, and we may share your comment on the show. Thank you again. Now it's time for our theme of the week. Each week, readers, we choose a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. This week, our theme is. Alexis, can you guess? No, you can't because I didn't tell you. (laughs) The theme is three reasons why it's so important to credit black creators. Ooh. Alexis, are you familiar with this whole Addison Rae and Jimmy Fallon controversy that went off about a few weeks ago? I think maybe last week. Yes, girl. I heard about that. Saw it too. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you're not familiar, Addison Rae is a TikTok star and I think a recording artist now. Uh, Jimmy Fallon invited her on his show to teach him, quote unquote, teach him the latest TikTok dances. (laughs) (laughs) And she performed the latest TikTok dances on his show. Completely Mm -hmm. cool, right? Well, the backlash was immediate on Twitter. Mm Why? Why was there backlash, you guys? Hmm. Because many of the dances she performed were created by black creators who were not credited on the show. The backlash to the backlash was immediate also, with many Ooh. asking, first of all, why does race have to always be dragged into everything? Second, Addison Ray is famous. It makes sense to have a famous person on the show. And I also saw a few are any of these TikTok dances really all that good anyway? <laughs> I did see one like that. They're just waving their arms. Right. They're just waving their arms. Get out of here. To that last user who asked if they're any good anyway, um, stick a pin in it. We'll answer your question soon. So why do black creators of songs, dances, and even viral social media fodder need to be credited? Let's discuss three reasons of many. First. Because authenticity and attribution are not new concepts, you guys. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Uh, Examples include songwriters and trademarks. Think for a second. Imagine your favorite artist. And if you basic like me, maybe it's Beyonce or Rihanna (laughs) being ripped off by someone you like don't feel at all. And I'm not going to say no names. Uh, Let's say it's Justin Timberlake right now. So let's say, <laughs> let's say Justin Timberlake was like, hey, y'all, I got this song and it's the bomb. La, 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 la. And then um, a small community of users online are like, no, I heard Rihanna saying la, 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 la in her kitchen on um, Instagram the other day. Y'all know uh, Rihanna don't be giving us no Instagram like that. And she's showing going to be singing. But this is just for play play. 
Yeah, because she said, mind your business. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Rihanna in that situation could legally sue the artist ripping off her work. And why? Why is that? Well, copyrights enable authors, for example, to control the use of their work. Who uses it and how? On this show, from a research perspective and also um, from like um, not educational at all, but like a book club uh, forum We do sometimes read authors' works and we also, of course, credit them. We also read a portion of the work so that our entire show is not based on their work. Trademarks and intellectual property laws exist so competitors cannot steal creative ideas, names, or symbols from other businesses. There is a conversation being had about trademarking dances because Mm. um now you and i don't play video games period but if we did we probably would have never played fortnite fortnite was really popular because um you could like do the dougie and stuff in it it was popular for a lot of reasons i remember that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you could do dances in it you know you could hit them folks in the game wow i'm cool now because i can i can't do it in real life but i can do it in the game said one gamer carlton yep yeah well the thing is those creators of those dances aren't being credited so while Fortnite makes a lot of money the creators get nothing so that's why that conversation is being had Mm -hmm. and they're using their creative their creativity to be cool creativity yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be cool and reach the masses so number two speaking of the masses society tends to favor showcase and pay white people more than they do black people do they did you know this? Mm, if not, you're going to hate this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you guys, the jig is up. Social media is not about being social. That's why telephones exist. And we don't Ooh. use them anymore because we don't like being social. I'm speaking for everybody. <laughs> what is social media about? It's about money. Followers and views equal real life dollars and cents. So when mm-hmm. someone invests their time and resource resources into something that's so amazing that it becomes wildly popular and goes viral does it really sound fair that the credit for that thing go to someone else if you don't think it's a big deal then don't use that thing (laughs) that's all and by credit I of course mean money because being on Jimmy Fallon upped Addison Rae's price she didn't create the dances she poorly performed but she is being credited with them because she was on Jimmy Fallon. Mm -hmm. I would also like to input my opinion in this. If I was Addison Rae, I'd be like, yeah, I want to go on that show and do them dances I made up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But Jimmy Fallon's team, someone older who's been in the business, who's, and by older, I mean like 25. Experience, (laughs) just experience. Should have said, hey, 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 while she's doing each dance, we can even have a ticker at the bottom or a um, video within a video showing the original dance that she's performing. Mm-hmm. That's so easy. Yeah. But it wasn't important to them. Which brings us to number three. Creators need the security to make content that won't be devalued by imitators. Um, the truth is, I don't know anything about Addison Ray. Maybe she's a really sweet girl. But the dances she performed next to the original creators um. It, it wasn't up to that level. Some of the right. creators are professional choreographers. Some of right. them aren't. They're just good dancers. And some dancing you just can't teach. <laughs> some <laughs> folks just got it. Okay. Hello. <laughs> and goodbye. <laughs> exactly. So to hop on a, you know, international platform like that. I mean, you can view Jimmy Fallon anywhere in the world. And then not perform the dance up to the level of the original performer devalues that content so that people are online asking, are any of these dances good anyway? The thing is, they are. (laughs) They are good. That's why everyone wants to do them. That's why they're so popular. But when they're redone and done again by people, you know, like me. Who, you know, I got rhythm. I ain't gonna lie to you. I could, you know, I'll be actually kind of nice with it. But I'm not gonna be like the original. You need to post it. You need to post it. (laughs) No, I'm I'm about books. I'm about books. Oh, oh, okay. But if it was just me doing, you know, I don't know the up, everybody would be like, I don't know the up look kind of, what's the word? (laughs) Pediatric. (laughs) 
But how old is that woman? archaic. The up looks down. <laughs> you see, you see. And so now people are like, well, the up is kind of whack because all I've seen is Curry do it. And then yeah. it devalues the content. Um, so I hope these three reasons first, uh, let's just go over them again first, because authenticity and attribution are not new concepts Two, because society tends to favor showcase and pay white people more than they do black people. And three, because creators need the security to make content that won't be devalued by imitators. Um, I hope these these three reasons clearly outlay why it's so important to credit creators. And I will say we are talking about black creators just because um, of the reason number two that we gave, how society tends to pay us less. However, all creators need to be credited. And I have found this difficult to do, especially when it comes to social media, reposting. It takes effort. Um, But if I can't credit someone, sometimes I just won't use that thing. If it's been passed around so much that it's hard to find the originator, Mm -hmm. then you know, maybe just don't use it. Um, And that's something, you know, we got to think about because we don't want to take food out of people's mouths. And then too, when you're in a certain area, it's easier to create video content just from a practical standpoint. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to find a quiet area to do your thing online or enough space where Mm -hmm. you can openly perform. Um, And some communities aren't made for that. So to find that area uh, and then to do your thing and then for it to go viral and then for someone else to get credit. It's really gross. You guys, anything you want to share, Alexis? No, but, um, yeah, I've, I've seen outrage on pretty, um, on other, um, dances that yeah. have come through and I, I'm like, seriously give the people the credit. But like you said, if you were offered just take the time to consider all the folks involved and give them credit where credit is due. And context matters. So if Alexis creates a dance and and she creates it on IG and I do it on TikTok and I start going viral for it, you know, maybe I'll make another TikTok video where I'm like, that dance actually came from Alexis or I'll put it in the uh, caption. But if I'm going on a national platform or an international platform, it becomes an ethical thing and I have to create credit Alexis. Um, so that she gets some of that shine too. And by shine, I mean dollars. Did I say dollars. this This is about money? So, yeah. All yeah, right. you did. <laughs> you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take one. Okay, let's do it. Yes. Alexis, can you please give us some background on our authors? Plural. Authors. Ibram X. Kendi. I love that name. Ibram X. Kendi. Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds. And perhaps okay. their inspiration for Stamped. Okay. All right. Let's do it. So Jason Reynolds is a national book award finalist for young people's literature. He writes novels and poetry for young adults and middle grade audiences. He was born in D.C., raised in Maryland, and he was inspired to um, begin writing poetry through rap at an early age, the tender age of nine. Me too, Jason. He read his first novel, not at nine, (laughs) but at 17. Wow, right? He published several poetry collections before his first novel was published in 2014. He's won awards for his uh, work, including an uh, NAACP Image Award and was a finalist, as I mentioned, for the National Book Award. In January 2020, Reynolds was named the Library of Congress's National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. This ambassador role is like a two-year position and that's used to increase appreciation for youth literature. He's also featured in a YouTube series called Right, Right, Right. I love that. (laughs) Where he engages with young writers and gives them writing prompts to stretch their imagination and learn to write authentically. Jason has written 14 books, including the book we are considering today, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. The collaboration was announced in August of 2019 and the book was released in April 2020. This book is a remix 
of Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. And let me tell you a little bit about Ibram. Ibram is a historian of race and discriminatory policy in America and is a leading anti-racist scholar. He is an author and professor, and he is the uh, Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. Ooh, mouthful. <laughs> he is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a CBS News racial, racial justice contributor. And in 2020, he was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people. He's won many awards for books and has been on the New York Times um, bestseller list a couple of times. Ibram has authored five books, including the book we're reviewing today, which is adapted again from Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. He wrote Stamp from the Beginning because he said the histories of race were incomplete and inaccurate. The book was published in 2016 and won the National Book Award for Nonfiction. He worked with Jason uh, Reynolds to remix it. Um, to what we're reading today for teens and young adults. He's remixed his original book, Stamp from the Beginning, a second time for readers 6 through 10, which is set to be released in May of this year. And that is Jason and Ibram. Did you know he took his wife's last name when he got married? Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I knew a few people that did that, but they didn't live here. Oh, okay. So, yep. so that's interesting. Did you know Jason Reynolds uh, wrote one of the editions um, of everyone's favorite Spider-Man, Miles yes. Morales? Yes. <laughs> yes. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thank you for that content, context. Sure. Um, can you please give us now a brief synopsis of the book without spoilers? Stamp tells a concise story of the history some of us may not have learned in school and introduces us to the first, the very first races and reveals how racist ideas developed, transformed and affected people over the years. Kari, who do you think would love this book? If you want to understand um, the American social hierarchy specifically, I think you'll love this book and should probably read it. What about you, Alexis? What were your first thoughts of Stamped? Mm. So I first learned about Stamped um, back in March of 2020. Um, they were on CBS this morning and I was getting dressed and um, trying to go to work, you know, back when we yeah. were actually going to work. Back in the day. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was actually watching, it was my morning routine, watch the TV news. CBS always has um, a book you know, I think it's like once a week there's an author on. And so I caught that episode and both Ibram and Jason were on. And um, so they were talking about it and I wasn't getting everything, but it seemed intriguing. So when I heard about it, of course, I immediately wanted to read it. Um, and one of the things that I um, learned from that interview that morning was that Ibram asked Jason at least three times if he would write that book. Yeah, and, and Jason, Jason was like, said, nah, no. man, I write children's books. <laughs> yep. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to do that. And he yeah. explained why. I don't remember. I didn't check in on the interview. He explained why, but he just didn't think he was the person for to write this book. It was like in depth, but um, he finally accepted. And so, um, yeah, I'm ready to get into it. All right. Thank you, Alexis. And now for a spoiler filled deep dive into Stamped. Take it away. Woo. Wow. Okay. So this is a um, a lot. Okay. It's a lot. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is try to, um, just, I'm not going to talk about the entire book. I just got to say that I'm not going to talk about the entire book, Why? but I am going to talk about <laughs> some pieces and then I'm going to have us, um, we're going to have a question and answer kind of talk oh, through some questions. We're have a discussion going on. Oh, is that what you call those? Okay, yeah, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. I want that this time, okay? Okay, sounds good. All right, so let's start with part one, which is laying the groundwork. Um, the book begins with an explanation of what a segregationist is. A segregationist is. Um, it says, they hate you for not being like them. That's a segregationist. An assimilationist 
They like you with question marks. They like you because you are like them. And an anti-racist is a person that loves you because you are you. People can be both. People are complex. They can be both and, okay? People can take on and act out ideas represented by all three of those identities. All right, to begin, Gomez Zurara was the first to write about and defend Black human ownership through his book, The Chronicle of the Discovery and Conquest of Guinea. Zurara was a um, Portuguese chrono- chronicler. <laughs> Chronological color? Wait, what? Chronicler? <laughs> I'm going to make up a word too. Yeah. He chronicled events. Oh, let's just say that? that then. Yeah. All right. He worked for <laughs> Prince Henry of Port- Portugal and his job was to make Prince Henry look good in all that he did whether it was good or bad, okay? He, he was, his job was to make him look great, um, which at the time, Prince Henry was still in gold and, you know, people, Africans. And so Prince Zurara did this through storytelling. Zurara wrote that the Portuguese saw the African slave trade as a missionary work from God to help civilize and Christianize Africans. This act was better than what the Spanish and Italians were doing because they were enslaving Eastern Europeans. Zurara's book became the primary source of knowledge of unknown Africa and African people for the original slave traders and enslavers. In his book, he depicted Africans as savage animals who needed taming. Okay, eventually this depiction would convince other African people that they were inferior. One man in particular is Johannes Leo Africanus or Leo the African. Leo was a well-educated Moroccan who was on a diplomatic journey along the Mediterranean Sea when he was captured and enslaved. He would later be freed by Pope Leo X, who converted him to Christianity and gave him the name Leo the African. Leo would later write a survey of this Africa. Is so wild. Okay. Mm-hmm. Echoing Zurara's statements, excuse me, sentiments, making him the first known African racist. Did you know that was a thing? Only after reading this book did I know this. Yeah. Zurara's idea was that Africans needed slavery in order to be fed and taught about Jesus. And that was ordained by God. And that's what stuck in the minds of Europeans and would make its way to America. Zurara's work was built upon two theories. One, the climate theory. That actually came from Aristotle. He questioned whether Africans were born this way, dark skin, and if the heat of the continent made them inferior. So if Africans lived in cooler temps, they would become white. Let's fix it. Just move them all to where it's cold and it'd be great. Ah, that didn't work because... The second theory, which is the curse theory, an English well, travel wait, wait, writer. With the dark skin theory, um, they found some darker skin people in Alaska, in the Alaska area. I'm a, that's what I'm oh. going into next. Sorry, uh, you go, go ahead, girl. You got it. <laughs> the curse theory, an English travel writer, uh, George Best, he did. He said that there's dark people living in Canada. So that can't be it. It can't be. The climate theory. Because Canadians are good. <laughs> also, that, I guess. <laughs> but instead, it was determined that Africans were cursed. Cursed? Who said that? Where? Well, they said that that was in the Bible. Best called himself interpreting the Bible to run with this theory. This curse was used as justification for slavery and gave the Europeans a feeling of benevolence. Okay. So it's a kindness to completely brutalize, um, sexually assault, break apart families, because we're teaching you our faith, which we not following, but you should know about it. Absolutely. Right. 
one-sided, very one-sided. So when the first Puritans, that's um, John Cotton and Richard Mather, came to the New World, which would later be called America, they were escaping religious persecution from the Church of England. So they built a system which included churches and the first school of higher education, which is Harvard. Harvard. Yes. <laughs> that was that skewed the way they um it was skewed towards their way of thinking. Uh, and Aristotle, they were like disciples of Aristotle too. So they mm-hmm. believed whatever he believed, racist ideas he had, they wanted to perpetuate. Yeah. And so they combined their Puritan ideas with climate and curse theory with Aristotle's belief in the human hierarchy. So instead of Greeks as better than um, everybody, it was Puritans are better than everybody everybody out there Puritans are better than thereby setting us up for an indisputable education and religious platform that laid the groundwork for future justification of slavery for years to come. So this is particularly scary because they took this poisonous idea and then isolated themselves with it in a land where they were completely fine um, mowing down hundreds and thousands of people at a time, all those natives, um, and then bringing in slaves and doing all of this, still perpetuating this poison, um, this racist uh, dogma. Right. And now without any oversight above them to kind of stop them or at least curtail what they did with that poison. They had full power. Full power. Yeah. They had full power. In 1619, a Spanish ship carrying 350 Angolians was hijacked by two pirate ships. And what was stolen? 60 Angolans and thieves. So they stole these humans, okay, kidnapped them. And the thieves that stole them came to Jamestown, Virginia, where the Angolans were sold to the first governor of Virginia. And they were put to work in the tobacco fields. You may ask, what happened to converting them to Christianity? Well, it became more important for the enslaved to work. And it was decided that they were too barbaric to be converted anyway. They couldn't be loved by God. So they were savage to their very soul. This is so crazy. So it started with wanting money. Um, And so then this racism came from that to justify, not the racism, but the, um, the whole, we're doing this to push our faith on these people. So right. it's a good thing. Right. Um, and then once they uh, decided that the faith was kind of getting in the way of the money, <laughs> they was like, you know what? Never mind, never mind. These people can't even learn uh, what faith is because they're animals. Okay. Oof. Can we keep making money? Yeah, let's do that. And mm-hmm. that's what happened. Yeah. Part two, class and privilege. As we know, when the Puritans arrived in the new world, The so-called new world. The so-called new world. Yes, people. Yes, so-called. There were people already present. The Native Americans and the white Americans, which were the Puritans. Tension between them was really reaching ahead. The Puritans had lost homes and soldiers, but eventually a Native American war leader who was uh, Metacomet was killed. And that really brought that battle to a close. Meanwhile, there was a poor white laborer class that was being taken advantage of by the white elite. So one of those poor white laborers, one Nathaniel Bacon, started a fight with the nearby neighbor natives. They were the um, Susquehannocks. The governor at the time was doing anything he could not to fight the natives. He wanted to keep peace because he wasn't trying to mess with his money. Bacon then (sighs) declared liberty for all servants and blacks because what he saw was that the elite were the problem and that the poor people should unite against them. Now, the governor was like. A poor farmer actually named Bacon (laughs) (laughs) was like the brightest uh, and was like, hey, everybody, black people, uh, Native Americans and me. We all being oppressed by the white elite. So let's all gang up because it's more us. Mm-hmm. Let's all gang up on them. See, he didn't care about race so much. 
Yeah. Not about money. Yep. He said, you just like me. We both <laughs> we <in> broke. A, <laughs> yes, we yeah. both poor. So. Except, you know, I'm not a slave. But, you know, you get the gist of what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go get the elite. So the governor was like, mm, if the poor whites and the blacks united, I would lose everything. So I can't let that happen. So he set up a way to turn poor whites and blacks against each other and created privilege. Now, what did this privilege include? Well, at the time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You mean white privilege has a start date? Yeah. (laughs) At At least on paper. And paper. Mm -hmm. At the time, that white privilege meant that the white rebels could be pardoned and the black rebels were given 30 lashes for lifting a hand against Christians. And at the time, Christians meant white. And then all whites had the absolute power to abuse any African person. Yeah, you could physically um, do whatever you want to a black uh, savage, but if they were to raise their hand, even in defense of themselves, they could even face death. Yeah. Part three, mm-hmm. building a foundation. British ended slavery in England, but not in the British colonies. America was a British colony and refused to end slavery. It provided so much free labor, they weren't prepared to end it. So instead, they ended their relationship with Great Britain. Wait, 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 wait. You mean our country fought two wars to keep slavery? (laughs) Yeah. How much you got to love slavery? (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh Just Mm -hmm. wanted to be clear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the Revolutionary War and the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. Now, Thomas Jefferson began the Declaration of Independence with the statement, all men are created equal. Yet Jefferson owned nearly 200 slaves, and agreed with slavery, but only as an economic system. He'd also grown up with black friends, which were likely the slaves of his family's plantation because they'd owned slaves for so long. However, in his writing, he included anti-racist sentiments, such as slavery was a cruel war against human nature. So Jefferson was the first man to say, can't be me. I can't be racist. I have black friends. Indeed. They in the yard picking my cotton. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After creating this declaration, Jefferson went into hiding. Okay, so the declaration goes over to England, um, to Britain, and they know about it. And they're like, we out to get you. So Jefferson goes into hiding with his family. And so while he's in hiding from the British, Thomas or excuse me, Jefferson is asked to respond to a series of questions from a French diplomat. So in his response, he speaks his true feelings about black people. This is like a three-way call when you don't know there's a third person on it. (laughs) So uh, a Frenchman was like, hey, hey, how you doing? Jefferson was like, hey, how you doing? And the Frenchman was like, hey, what you think of black people? And he was like, well, between you and me. (laughs) Let me tell you the real tea. And this is what he said. Blacks could never assimilate because they are inferior by nature. They love more, but they pain less. So they like don't feel pain, only love. Because they have more souls. Mm. So they're more passionate. Um, This is also a great example of fetishizing black bodies. Um, And you can beat them as much as you want because they barely even feel pain. Sounds disgusting. They aren't reflective individuals. They operate more on instinct, you know, like animals. Freeing slaves would result in extermination of one of the races or, you know, likely cause a race war. The best answer would be to send the slaves back to Africa. Now, this information, you know, Jefferson just wanted to tell that one diplomat. He didn't expect this to get out. But the French diplomat was like, let me print this out. Bet. Heard you. And Press. he yeah, <laughs> shared it. OK, so Jefferson didn't intend for this to get out in the streets, but it did. That French diplomat printed that stuff out without his permission and titled it Notes on the State of Virginia. 
Jefferson is obviously double-tongued, okay? Jefferson's declaration exposed a weak American government. So the Constitution was supposed to define and solidify it. Before it it was set in stone, there were a series of compromises. The first one, the Great Compromise. Now, the Great Compromise created the House and the Senate. It meant that two senators per state and the House of Representatives would be based on population. That meant big states got more representatives for fight to fight for their interests. Highly populated this, states. Yeah. Yeah. So this led to another problem. What about all those slacks? Yeah. yeah. That led to the three-fifths, the three-fifths compromise. The South. They didn't want to count the slaves as people, but they wanted to count them as property. The greater the population, the more you pay in taxes. But they needed the population so they could have more representation. The North was like, nope, slaves can't be human. Are they property or are they human? We know y'all Take want these pick. votes, but you're going to have to pay some taxes. And they was like, ah. Right. Mm-hmm. The North didn't have slaves. So they wouldn't have that comparative population. And they didn't want the South to have more power. So the compromise, every fifth slave equaled three humans. Fitting into the argument that slaves were both human and subhuman. For assimilationists, this meant that they could one day argue that slaves would equal, um, eventually achieve a, a whole human status. Yeah. That is it. Oh, this is and for gross. segregationists, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm, it continued the belief oh. that blacks were inferior. This agreement allows slavery and racist ideas to be permanently stamped into the founding document of America. Some years after the document was signed, Africans in Haiti rose up against the French rule and won, allowing Haiti to become a symbol of freedom. Not the Americas, but Haiti. Yeah, America became, had just, well, not had just, but had won freedom from England. They wanted to be the symbol of freedom for the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they were not. This concerned American slaveholders because the Haitian Revolution would inspire their slaves to fight back. And don't nobody want none of that. Part five, uplift suasion. As the runaways uh, started to get free, Abolitionists urged the newly freed people go to church regularly, speak proper English, learn some math, adopt a trade, get married, stay away from things like smoking and drinking. Stop it. Be respectable like white people so they could prove all the stereotypes wrong. This is racist. It's a racist (laughs) view, okay? Because it says that black people cannot be themselves and they had to fit in this white mold to deserve freedom. It also says that black people don't know what it is to act honorably, uh, that they don't know math, which is hilarious if you look at history. So, yeah. This is the cornerstone of the assimilationist thought. Make yourself small, make yourself unthreatening, Make yourself the same, make yourself safe, make yourself quiet to make white people comfortable when you're around. Part six, the framework. On January 4th, 1826, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, two men died whose legacies were deeply entwined with slavery. Instead of viewing this as a reason to change course, people were encouraged to carry out their legacy. The two dead men. With the revolutionary abolitionist movement practically dead, a man named William Lloyd Garrison, a man with power and privilege, wasn't afraid to speak out against slavery. Garrison read the books of a black man named David Walker and Walker argued against the idea that black people were made to serve white people. Garrison, influenced by Walker's work, started a newspaper called The Liberator and changed his favor of gradual abolitionists to immediate abolitionists, which meant instead of gradually um, freeing blacks, release them immediately. But gradual equality and that continued the idea of uplift suasion where it was the blacks responsibility to convince white people they weren't scary people 
Garrison <laughs> would later start the American Anti-Slavery Society and distribute anti-slavery pamphlets. In 1845, Frederick Douglass published the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. Now, this book brought abolitionists closer to slavery because in it, Douglass detailed or outlined the horrors of slavery and it hit them hard. They were affected. Because the talk then, was that black black bodies couldn't really feel pain like white bodies. We're not the same. Um, so when this firsthand account came out, all the horrors and evilness of slavery were put black and white. So mm-hmm. uh, no one could deny that. Oh, yeah. Black people, I guess, do feel pain. That's crazy. That is crazy. Mm hmm. And then there was Sojourner Truth's narrative. And then there was the Fugitive Slave Act that snatched free blacks and sent them back to the cotton fields. So if, if you, maybe you escaped, right? And you were just walking about or Or maybe your you business. were born free. <laughs> maybe also you were that. born free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if... I, I've seen movies where they had to have papers, but yeah. that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. That didn't matter. You could be snatched up and sent back to the fields. This inspired the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became a huge hit and set the stage for Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln argued that slavery shouldn't be, but not because it was a horrible way to treat humans, but because if labor was free, what would poor whites do to make money? Right. Economic. Slavery wasn't in your favor if you weren't wealthy. So if slavery is gone, that makes the blacks happy. And no equal rights for black people mean, makes the racists happy. And then the end of slavery boast, would bolster the white economy, the poor white economy. So whites were happy. So when Abraham Lincoln won the presidency, pledging not to challenge slavery, Southerner, Southerners didn't trust it. And they, and they left the union. They left the union. They, they left the union. Mm-hmm. And they created the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. In the Confederacy, they made up their own rules, voted in their own president who declared that blacks would never be equal to whites. And this led to the Civil War, which led to slaves wanting to fight against the Confederacy. But the Union soldiers were enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act, which would later be repealed, leading to Lincoln creating a bill that said all persons held as slaves within any state shall forever be free. Then, because he liked the attention and praise that he was getting from blacks at the end of the Civil War, he said, you know what? Maybe blacks can vote too. I think I think they could do that. Well, three days later, he was dead. <laughs> so that wasn't going to be a thing. And his successor was Andrew Johnson. And Andrew Do- Johnson did his best to undo everything Lincoln attempted to accomplish. And black codes were created to stop blacks from living freely. Those codes involved Jim Crow laws, which were laws that legalized racial segregation. For more on that, please see our Warmth of Other Signs episodes from season one. Mm. Also, it emboldened the Ku Ku the it it also the KKK. That's a good way to say it. Mm -hmm. It also emboldened the KKK, giving them permission to wreck black lives without consequence. Andrew Johnson did everything he could to keep black people as free slaves. Now, I want to talk I just about wanna, um, cl- that's a great statement. So not in slavery, but still working as slaves, not always being compensated. And so this type of um, societal slavery, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the, it, the structure of slavery was gone, but the thinking and the practices were not. Yeah. Um, and it kind of goes back to your theme of the week where, you know, people doing work and not getting paid. Yeah. Creative license. Right. And so not that we're comparing creators to slaves. No, that's not my intention. <laughs> but I got you. Yeah. Um, so I want to end talking about the book there, but I do want to talk about three notable blacks. One is W.E.B. Du Bois. He was actually the king of assimilation. 
He wanted to show white people that blacks could be just as great as they were. Better. Yeah. He went to the best school for blacks, Fisk University. Oh, and it was the top school for teaching black people uplift suasion. Eventually, his dream came true and he attended Harvard University, the best all white school ever. He was uh, so good at Harvard that he was able to speak at graduation. It was the it was the boys who talked about the idea of double consciousness and the talented 10, which was the idea that one in every 10th black person was worthy of a job. These would be the assimilated blacks. Then there's Booker T. Washington. Um, Booker T. Washington was a shining star of Tuskegee University, and he, too, was an assimilationist and found fault with the black man. Washington privately supported empowerment of blacks, but publicly advised blacks to focus on lower pursuits. Don't try to be greater than a white man. This is something that white people like because it meant that blacks wouldn't be in positions of power. And then there was Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey came to America from Jamaica to raise money to start a school. And when he arrived in America, he learned that the NAACP was started by white men. Listen, I just learned that a couple weeks ago. Not just a white man, just like W.E.B. Du Bois and, you know, white people were included in the. Yeah, they were the founding fathers of it. And he was confused by this as to whether it was a white organization or a black organization because it seemed that only blacks who could, the only blacks who could succeed succeed were biracial or light-skinned. Now, Garvey was an anti-racist and he saw black people as valuable in color and culture. So he started his own organization to focus on African solidarity, the beauty of black skin and African-American culture and self-determination. So those are Just some points in the story. And now I have a series of questions for you, Kari, for us to discuss. Okay, here's the first question. Abraham Lincoln, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Booker T. Washington are remembered as defenders of black liberation. How did these figures propel anti-racist thought and enforce racist (laughs) ideas? How you gonna give me a quiz? I thought we was having a discussion. We are okay. I got it. I got it. No, a it's fine. One. What, what was the first part? How did they propel what? How did they propel <laughs> anti-racist thought? I mean, for me to be putting you on the spot so often, this is just payback, and I'm fine <laughs> with it. Um, how did they propel anti-racist thought? Yeah, I don't know about um, Lincoln so much. Uh, I will say with W.E.B. Du Bois, this book is very critical of him, as are his contemporaries. So uh, that is a consistent voice. Uh, He definitely had a theory of the ideal black, and that did involve colorism, um, also education politics and respectability politics. Um, But that man um, worked very hard to ensure um, some of the uh, rights that, you know, we enjoy today. And and while, you know, he wasn't perfect, like no one's perfect. Right. Um, there were some like I think he's accredited accredited with the quote of like uh, the cost of liberty is less than the price of uh, um, repression. Um, and I love that because uh, what he showed and what these men showed was how easy it would be to cross this line from evil, savage enslavers to. Um, where society is today, where you still have racist people, but still more opportunity for people of color. And we're not trying to, um, well, I won't say where people aren't, but as a whole, this whole dogma of black people being subhuman doesn't um, exist in the masses. Some people still believe it, no doubt, but overall it's not pushed by the government. Well, I'm saying a lot that I'm questioning. Um, next question. <laughs> so in in these um, these men, we could see that a person can have a racist, segregationist, and anti-racist ideas all at once. And you yeah, kind of one body. About that. Thomas Jefferson and, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, what he they had call black him? children and freed them, but them other slaves that he didn't, uh, <laughs> you know, create, they wasn't yeah. free. Yeah, he was yeah. a walking contradiction and by all means. But you can see that and you can see that today. You know, people feel strongly about 
you know, who they are as a black person, but still have those assimilation ideas where you have to, you know, make adjustments so that the white person is comfortable. I think especially with um, maybe an older generation who was so mm. intent on not um, exhibiting the qualities of racist people. Some people picked up like black racism. <laughs> like um, I can think of older black people who do things and say things to me that feels very like racist against black people, um, yeah. especially when it comes to how we should look, how our hair should be, yep. how should we, how we should speak, what we can do, what we can't do and what we shouldn't do around white people. Like, right. That's all very icky. Yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, I remember my grandmother when I first went natural, which was a billion and 10 years ago. My grandmother was so disgusted, you know, because she raised her daughters on straight hair. Mm -hmm. This is what you're supposed to look like. So for your hair to grow out of your scalp that way, that's a problem. You need to fix it so you can appeal to the white people. Mm -hmm. That that um, resonates with me as I read this book and that assimilationist idea. And then the subtext of that conversation is you are not good enough as you are. Correct. You were mm -hmm. born not good enough. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, which is a racist idea. I'm going to yeah. insert that. Mm -hmm. So another question. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the concept of double consciousness, a two-ness, a self that is black and a self that is American. Why might people of color feel this way? Um, because. Uh, the conversation about going back to Africa, if I can start there, um, is very uh, strange to have with someone who wasn't born in Africa. And uh, one statement that I thought was interesting from this book is that the, the soil of this country is literally soaked with the blood of um, African people who helped build it. And so uh, black people are as much citizens of this country and contributors of it as anyone else. Um, and even more so um, in particular periods of time. Um, so that duality there where you're somewhere that you built, it's like being in a home that you built where no one that living in it wants you there. <laughs> and you're mm. like, well, I could leave, but then I built it though. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't necessarily want y'all to leave because that's not feasible. That's so how can we all get along in this house right. that we all contributed to building? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Very interesting. Um, is there anything that surprised you in this book? The criticism of uh, his like, American sociologists and historians who had racist ideas. I don't like it. Um, I feel the same when, you know, Malcolm X had criticism for Martin Luther King. I don't like it. Mm. I don't think it's fair to judge someone in the light of the present. And um, mm. there's a statement here about how assimilists are cowards. Mm, and I yes. do not agree with that. I mm. don't. I don't agree that assimilation is right, but I also don't think that people who are wrong are cowards. They can truly be mistaken. And when you put all you have into a mistaken idea and you're willing to die for that mistaken idea, that doesn't make you a coward. It just makes you wrong. <laughs> loud you know? and wrong. Yeah. How often am, am I wrong about things and how you know, we all should be learning. Um, W.B. Du Bois, for example, his views changed as uh, yeah. he got older, um, especially as um, the Malcolm X years began, um, his ideas changed. So I didn't like that in this book, especially when it since it's geared toward children. Um, I don't want them to feel like it's OK to. And this is like respectability or whatever to disrespect <laughs> old people, <laughs> even if they did. <laughs> just I don't know. Now, um, if you want to say that Lincoln was a racist, well, that's true. And I'm fine with that. But saying that W.B. Du Bois was a coward, I don't like. And that's what I remember reading um, mm. in this book. I hope I'm not misspeaking, but that's what well, I remember. Well, towards the end of the book, it does say assimilation is cowards and parens. It does say that. So, um, And I get it. I mean, I get it. Yeah. But it does. And and I'm, I guess they're saying they're cowards because they didn't stand up for your individuality. Right? That's so easy to say. <laughs> like, 
people die for their individuality and people have families and responsibilities and how Mm -hmm. much is it worth at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. What about you? What would you think? So surprised in the book? Yeah, I was surprised. I didn't know. I don't remember knowing that the um, southern states left the union. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's crazy that you didn't know that. You knew that. I did. I don't remember you knowing that. You ever see a Confederate flag? <laughs> I did, but I didn't know that was because they went out and created their own system. They left the union and were brought okay, back into let's it. let's add some context. If I get really <laughs> mad at my parents and I move into the basement and, you know, I stop using they food. I, I don't know what it is with houses in me, but anyway, I stop <laughs> using their groceries. I start buying my own groceries. I stop using their utilities and I start being self-sufficient in their basement. <laughs> How free am I? (laughs) Listen, no, but they were on their own land. They were on, they separated themselves and, you know, were, they were going to work their own land and make their own dollars. They were going to work their own land? And that's another thing. They're slaves. America carried slavery to the point where we became um, an embarrassment to the Western world. Yes. So in order for a country to exist, diplomacy is needed and you have to work with other countries. I don't personally see how that future would have panned out with a Confederate South still clinging to slavery. I mean, we got machines, (laughs) (laughs) you know, folks is working, getting jobs, inventing stuff. And you still holding on to slavery? Why, though? But think about how many people hold on to old things. Think about that. That's a real thing. So, I mean, yeah. 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 So was there anything that angered you or made you sad? Well, I would think it was the way they talked about the elders, huh? Oh, no, that didn't anger Mm. me or make me sad. I just uh, felt away, but it it wasn't lasting. I really thought the way that this heavy information was delivered was perfect for kids. It was it wasn't lighthearted, but it was delivered in yeah kind of like a easygoing way and there were even some jokes put in there um, yeah. <laughs> that were appropriate to the topics and right um yeah and I like that it didn't put down one group of people based on race it, this isn't a book to teach you uh, about white America and how you should feel about them this is truly a book about the origins of racism it, it truly is and it it um it talked about how they it's the policies the yeah. policies not so much the people. Yeah, there are people that are racist, but it's from these policies that were put in place. Yeah, yeah. So I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. So I'm going to stop the quiz here. And that okay. was going to be the end of my um, deep dive. Okay. And I like oh. how you covered all the, because um, he does go right on up until Barack Obama's presidency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of years not covered there, but yeah. Yeah. It leaves it to you, reader. Go yeah, ahead. And- mm hmm. <laughs> which I, I feel like we did a lot of it in um warmth of other sons malcolm mm-hmm. x yeah um yeah was that early and we're gonna stuff. do some more interesting. Uh, history with cast when we finally read that so yeah so yeah, why don't we'll we take it. a quick break okay sounds good What did you think? Um, Would you recommend this book? Um, I will say that lately we've read a lot of books that focus on history as it pertains to uh, racism and um, African um, slavery. And that's getting heavy for me, especially during these times. Um, So I would have probably not read the book right now. Mm. I probably would have waited another month or something. I don't know why Mm -hmm. why that makes sense to me. Uh, But uh, this book overall, well done. I would recommend it. The context is very fact based. And I liked how... um, it makes a point to let you know it's not a history book, but it's presenting mm-hmm. history to you. Um, so, yeah, I enjoyed this book. I thought it was um, well done, well read, well researched, and I would recommend it. Just personally for me right now, I could have used something like a comedy. 
But that's fine. That's life. <laughs> what about you, Alexis? What did you think of Stamped and would you recommend it? I would definitely recommend it. Um, it was the history lesson that I didn't know I needed and I did need it. Um, I was it was good to hear just the details of how early and how that um, all the way back then, all the way to Zurara and then Aristotle, because Aristotle was before him. So mm-hmm. and he got those ideas and just hearing that thread and how it expanded and contracted and expanded of racism and racist ideas. I really enjoyed hearing that. So I would definitely read it again. Um, excuse me, definitely recommend it. And um, yeah, I enjoyed the book very much. All right. Thank you. What are we reading next week? We are reading The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Perfect. Thank you for listening to Lit Society, you guys. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. (laughs) If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit litsocietypod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time... Read something. something.